You are listening to National Security Law Today. Welcome to National Security Law Today, the podcast of the American Bar Association Standing Committee on Law and National Security. I'm Nicole, a member of the committee staff. The ABA Standing Committee is comprised of seasoned national security lawyers and law professors. The committee has spent the past 55 years keeping lawyers and the public informed and aware of the most pressing questions in national security law today. You can find more about the Standing Committee online or join our listserv at AmericanBar.org NatSecurity. The committee is also holding a two-day conference on national security law in Washington, D.C. on November 1st and 2nd. Visit our website, AmericanBar.org NatSecurity, to learn more and register for the annual conference, where we'll have expert panels on timely national security topics like surveillance, trade and CFIUS, that's the Committee on Foreign Investment in the United States, immigration, social media and national security, and more. Sign up now to take advantage of our early registration rates, and we look forward to seeing you there. Today we're going to hear a segment from a cybersecurity panel at the ABA annual meeting in Chicago. This panel was titled, Cybersecurity Wake-Up Call, The Business You Save May Be Your Own. We're going to hear the keynote remarks from Raj Day to open up the panel. Mr. Day is a partner at Mayor Brown and the former general counsel of the National Security Agency, as well as a former guest on this very podcast. Please enjoy his address on cybersecurity and visit AmericanBar.org slash NatSecurity or our partners at the ABA Cybersecurity Legal Task Force at AMBAR.org slash cybersecurity for more information on this program. Thanks for the introduction and thanks for all of you for coming out today and to the ABA and the Cybersecurity Task Force for pulling this event together. Can you hear me okay in the back? Okay, all right. Well, uh, I know I'm just a warm-up act and the main event is coming after me, so I'll keep my remarks brief, but I did want to frame the topic of cybersecurity and why it's so important for all of us and for the government and for businesses today. So 15 years ago, I was a junior staffer on the 9-11 Commission. That was the Blue Ribbon Bipartisan Commission set up to look at the 9-11 attacks and to investigate what our government knew and could have done to prevent those attacks and how we responded afterwards. And among the commission's findings were that we had plenty of clues prior to 9-11 had we been able to connect the dots. But two of the biggest failures of the government were one, a failure of imagination on the part of our leadership to see something like the 9-11 attacks coming, and two, a lack of unity of effort across the government to prioritize our actions against the terrorist threat at the time. A failure of imagination and a lack of unity of effort. Now those words resonate, at least with me, and I hope with you, a great deal today. Let me give you an example. The current Director of National Intelligence, Dan Coates, so he's the leader of the entire U.S. intelligence community, uh, recently gave a speech, and in that speech he invoked the words of the former director of Central Intelligence, George Tenet, before 9-11. So Director Tenet famously said, before 9-11, the system was blinking red with respect to the terrorism threat. In other words, we should have known there was a lot happening. Now it's pretty amazing that the current director of National Intelligence said today the system is blinking red with respect to the cyber threat. And he said that because, as we all know by reading the papers, our digital ecosystem is under attack constantly, every day. Indeed, just this week, our Secretary of Homeland Security 
said that cyber threats have now exceeded physical threats as the greatest threat vector to the homeland today. We should not take those sorts of warnings lightly. They're not new. You may recall a few years ago, then Secretary of Defense Leon Panetta famously warned of the potential for a cyber Pearl Harbor. And ever since 2013, the US government has listed cyber threats ahead of terrorism and ahead of all other threats as the most significant threat vector to the US in its annual worldwide threat assessment to the US Congress. This is a big hearing every year where the Director of National Intelligence and the heads of the FBI, CIA, DIA, and NSA show up to the Hill. And every year since 2013, the US intelligence community has put cybersecurity at the top of that list. Now all these warnings are relevant in terms of the reality of the cyber threat and the challenges we face today, and that I saw up close in the White House, at the NSA, and now in private practice. And there are three challenges I wanted to at least highlight for us. First, the rapidly, and evolving, rapidly evolving and escalating threat landscape. Second, the need for prioritization and focus. And third, the fact that these challenges are magnified in a global environment. So first, let me speak to that escalating and evolving threat landscape. 15 years ago, if you asked most experts what is cybersecurity about, they would have told you it's about preventing the stealing of stuff, whatever that stuff is, personal information or intellectual property. At the NSA, we called that dimension of the cyber threat exploitation, for short, stealing stuff. Now, of course, that's still relevant today, but it's only one aspect of a very multi-dimensional threat. By the time I got to the NSA in 2012, a new dimension of the cyber threat started to emerge in public consciousness, the threat of disruption. And perhaps the best example are the DDoS attacks, and DDoS is an acronym that stands for Distributed Denial of Service. Basically, a whole lot of web traffic goes to a website to overwhelm it. The DDoS attacks that happened on our financial institutions, Wall Street banks, that disabled the public-facing websites from anywhere for just a few hours to a few days. The US government has since attributed those attacks to Iranian actors. So you had the threat of exploitation, disruption. 2013, 2014, 2015, we started to see yet another dimension of the cyber threat emerge into public consciousness, the threat of destruction. And the best examples of that that are publicly known uh, the attack on the Saudi Aramco oil company, for example, in which some 30,000 computers were just bricked, turned into hunks of metal overnight. All the data was wiped. There was a similar attack on the Las Vegas Sands Casino. And then probably the attack we've all heard about the most, the Sony hack in late 2014, where in addition to salacious emails from the CEO being leaked, and in addition to intellectual property, like that silly movie about the North Korean leader being stolen, Thousands of computers were actually taken offline. It was a very destructive attack. So you had exploitation, disruption, destruction. And over the past few years, you've heard our national security leaders start to warn of yet another dimension, the threat of manipulation. That can take lots of forms, but two are probably most prominent, the threat of manipulation of physical objects in our increasingly connected world, your refrigerator to your car to your Fitbit are all increasingly becoming attack surfaces for bad actors, they're all connected, or the threat of manipulation of data. Because if you really think about it, the only thing worse than stealing your data 
or making it inaccessible to you is if a bad actor fiddles with it in a way that undermines its integrity. In other words, you can no longer trust data. We live in a data world, and the minute we start to lose trust in, the, in that data, it, very grave consequences can follow. So we've had this escalation of multiple dimensions of the cyber threat. Exploitation, disruption, dis destruction, manipulation. But perhaps even more worryingly, in the past couple of years, we've seen a magnification in the sophistication, scope, and scale of these various dimensions. So let me give you just a few, uh, a few data points for that. Whereas a few years ago it was uncommon, now it's very common to read about data breaches that impact millions, if not billions, of users at a time. All you have to think about is the hack on OPM, the Office of Personnel <laughs> Management, the hack of Equifax, or perhaps largest, the Yahoo hack, which imp implicated billions of Yahoo users. So we're now talking about billions of users at a time. Another stat, according to FBI estimates, ransomware now infects more than 100,000 computers every day. 100,000 computers a day. Estimates of the amount of ransom paid to criminals is now approaching $1 billion annually. That's a billion dollars going to criminal and other networks through ransomware. In 2016, we saw one of the most significant DDoS attacks since the 2012 episode that I mentioned. It was an attack on a company called DIN, which controls much of the internet's domain name uh, system infrastructure. And what was interesting about this attack is unlike prior attacks that had largely relied on taking control of computers around the world to send a lot of traffic to a website, this attack relied on infecting lots of products, connected products around the world, which can have an even more devastating effect. So in other words, controlling cameras and other internet-connected devices around the world to overwhelm the website of a company called DIN, which had subsequent impact on the entire ecosystem. And last summer, we had the WannaCry and NotPetya attacks, which did much more than just encrypt computers and wipe data. They spread rapidly across industries and indiscriminately disrupted the operations of not just businesses, but schools, hospitals, and other critical infrastructure. There were reports of tens of thousands of WannaCry infections across 150 countries in a matter of weeks. 150 countries. So what to make of this cumulative impact? Well, the White House Council of Economic Advisors recently released a report which estimated that malicious cyber activity cost the US economy alone between 57 and $109 billion in 2016. And in a speech just last year, the Deputy Attorney General, Rod Rosenstein, cited predictions that the monetary costs of the global annual cost of cybercrime will double from $3 trillion to $6 trillion by 2021. So all of that is to say we cannot afford a failure of imagination in this context, unlike the, the terrorism context earlier where we've already seen the consequences in the cost of human life. So what does that mean? We clearly know the situation is bad. How do we address it? Well, likewise, we can't afford a failure of imagination. We can't afford the lack of unity of effort and focus and prioritization, which is really what was absent pre-9-11 in our counterterrorism efforts 
And we're seeing efforts to combat that with respect to cybersecurity today. So rather than catalog what's going on in the government and the private sector, I thought I would just focus, at least mention, three areas of priority and focus that are bubbling to the surface regardless of your industry, regardless of your regulator, and I think will be some of the topics we talk about as a group. The first is treating cybersecurity as a risk management problem and not as an information technology problem. It's a mantra in the cybersecurity community, but there's a lot underneath that. It's thinking about cyber risk not just as a question of what uh, technical protections do you have in place, how is your IT department set up to deal with an incident, but rather thinking of it as a business risk, like hurricanes, if you're a hurricane-prone business, like other business operation risks, it is an enterprise-wide risk which requires the input and involvement of lots of different parts of your business or enterprise. Now this philosophy is embodied in something called the NIST framework, which you may have heard about. It's a risk management framework put out by the National Institute of Standard and Technology in 2014. And the point of the framework was to at least affect the dialogue around cybersecurity to one around risk management. And this philosophy is reflected in lots of different regulations, both regulations and industry best practices. NHTSA, of course, reflects a risk management framework when we're talking about automobile cybersecurity. The FDA reflects a risk management framework when we're talking about medical devices. The FTC has stressed the import of thinking about cybersecurity as a risk management exercise if you're a consumer-facing business. So this idea of thinking of cybersecurity in this way is one of the major themes that are important to take away. Second, there is an increasing focus on corporate governance issues, board oversight, disclosure issues, and management controls when it comes to cybersecurity. One need look no further than the Securities and Exchange Commission's guidance earlier this year. This is the first guidance actually put out by the commission itself as opposed to SEC staff on cybersecurity. And it's worth reading because it focuses largely on disclosure responsibilities, on management controls. How are you supposed to organize to deal with cyber risk? How do you tell your investors you're organized to deal with cyber risk? How do you ensure that internal stakeholders in the event of an incident are taking the appropriate actions? So corporate governance. We saw this past year the first SEC settlement with any company over a cybersecurity incident with Yahoo, another important marker. But it's not limited to the SEC. We see state and federal regulators dealing with corporate governance as well. And a good example is the New York Department of Financial Services, which last year implemented a landmark cybersecurity law for lots of financial institutions governed by that regulatory body. And a core part of the DFS regs was the requirement of there being regular reports to a board of directors and certifications by firm or company leadership, so corporate governance. And the, the third topic I wanted to focus on, or at least mention, is the import of vendor and supply chain management. So it's a little bit of a trite phrase, but any business is only as secure as the weakest link. Global businesses are increasingly connected, so it doesn't really matter if you feel like your business is protected if you're doing business with lots of other companies that are connected to you that have far less secure systems. So just a little bit of stats here. According to the Poneman Institute, 56% of businesses polled said they had experienced a data breach linked to one of their vendors. 
that's more than half. And the risk of exposure only grows as more third-party companies gain access. The respondents in that survey said that an average of 470 outside companies had access to their sensitive corporate data as compared to 380 outside companies the year before. So in other words, more and more companies have more and more access to more and more of any given company's sensitive information. And that right there is probably the most significant threat vector folks can think about. So lastly, uh, the third major challenge I wanted to mention was the dynamic of a global environment and how much more complicated that makes dealing with cybersecurity. Of course, cybersecurity and cyber incidents know no national boundaries. Businesses are increasingly connected around the world. And we're seeing regulatory authorities around the world take different approaches to cybersecurity. The most recent example is the General Data Protection Regulation, the GDPR, in Europe, which has uh, some very stringent requirements, but most importantly for this discussion, requirements that don't necessarily align with those in the US or elsewhere around the world. A different definition of what constitutes personal information, for example. A requirement that data breaches be recorded, reported when possible within 72 hours. That's pretty significant. And fines that far outstrip anything we've seen in the US, potential fines. So let me give you one practical example before I close as to how this impacts things. I, my practice, and I am currently dealing with a huge global cybersecurity incident for a major Asian multinational company. It started with their European sub, and it involves victim information in the US and elsewhere around the world. So already you can see multiple jurisdictions are involved. We've been dealing with law enforcement authorities in several jurisdictions in Europe and the US and elsewhere. And we're dealing with regulatory bodies around the world, everywhere from Canada to Australia to the US to the UK. <coughs> and through our work with some very sophisticated cybersecurity companies, we've been able to trace the threat actor's infrastructure to such far-flung places around the world as Belize, the UK, Netherlands, and the Ukraine. And we are sending lawyers into court in lots of jurisdictions to take action against this threat actor. That is an unbelievable global challenge for any given company, but that's how the threat has evolved. So let me just end by saying, no matter all of these challenges, we cannot afford to have that failure of imagination, not looking around the corner, that we experienced pre-9-11, and we certainly have to focus and prioritize to ensure unity of effort, both in the private sector and with the government. Thank you. Thank you for listening to National Security Law Today, the podcast of the Standing Committee on Law and National Security. Tune in again soon for our next episode. You can follow us online on Twitter at ABNATSEC or on our Facebook page. But remember, social networking isn't really networking. You have to show up. A great time to show up would be at the 28th Annual Review of the Field of National Security Law Conference, November 1st and 2nd in Washington, D.C. Visit us at AmericanBar.org slash National Security for more information and to register for this conference. From all of us here, thank you for listening. We'll see you next time. The views expressed on national security law today have not been approved by the House of Delegates or the Board of Governors of the American Bar Association and accordingly should not be construed as representing ABA policy.